Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to this week's Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and this week we'll be chatting Bathurst 1000, Gen 3, Supercars Calendar, the ongoing madness that is Formula One, and more. Joining me from across the garage is a teammate that I would gladly let use the lightest doors in the spares truck, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, unlike me, you were actually at the Bathurst 1000. How are you and how was it? Uh, to be honest, how am I? Probably exhausted. How was mm-hmm. it? Awesome. I hadn't been to an event in a little while and it was, uh, yeah, really cool. Like uh, it was always going to be a huge, huge week, six days, 10 categories. So uh, I'm not sure if this is going to be a really long pod as we dissect it all or a short one because it's all a bit of a blur to me at the moment, but uh, you'll have your work cut out to uh, prompt me along the way. It feels like a long time ago that Chaz Mostert crashed that TCR car uh, in first practice for those blokes on Tuesday. I'd totally forgotten that he even won the TCR championship. <laughs> like it's all like it is. It has been fairly good. Did it feel like a proper Bathurst 1000? Like we spoke we spoke the other week about the fact you were there last year for the sort of weird half, you know, 4,000 people a day, whatever, Bathurst. Did it feel like back to normal? Did it feel better than normal being there? I think like we sort of talked about it last week, I was a little bit naive to think it was going to be a, a full-strength Bathurst. I mean, last year was probably a glass of water and this year was at least a mid-strength beer. Uh, it was certainly a bit thin um, crowd-wise in in the week during during the lead up, but by Sunday it was it was a pretty good atmosphere. But certainly campers and all that were a fair bit down because of these ongoing border uh, border situations. Hopefully, I'm going to time my run back when it's like a a nine percent you know porter or like some sort of XB. I don't know. I'm not a craft beer drinker. When when it's a Carlton dry, then I'm I'm back in. Let's let's crack into the uh, to the great race. Uh, was it a thrilling contest? Probably not. Was it a brilliant result? If you can't be happy for a good bloke like Lee Holdsworth winning the Bathurst 1000, then you um you just can't be happy. Simple as that, I reckon. I'm still like in some sort of shock at at the pace of that walkie Commodore. Uh, not so much across the whole week, but certainly on Saturday and Sunday. I mean, that was a race won on nothing but speed. Um, and unless that tyre issue was going to become a recurring problem through setup or something like that, it was pretty much uh, Mostert and Holds' race to lose from lap one. Stefan, do you agree that – well, sorry, were you surprised by the sheer sp- uh, speed of that car? Oh, yeah, I think everyone was pretty shocked. Um, we sort of – we knew they had – the basic ingredients to win in terms of uh, they've got runs on the board at Bathurst, obviously, and a great co-driver in Lee Holdsworth who was always going to be an ace for them. But it's so rare to see a Bathurst race dominated by one car like that. And when you look at their week, they were top three in every session. And just in the race, they just drove away from people all day long. And uh, even that tyre issue, as you say, it was a setback, but they just had speed to burn um it's the first time in the v8 era that a car's actually got pole fastest lap and won the race like they've absolutely nailed it um and it was even more unexpected really because they the form going in was pretty ropey um, oh, for sure but in a way i think that the struggles they had at smp meant they had to really try things out of the box try different setups it forced them to learn where if you if you turned up at SMP with a good car straight away you kind of stuck with it a little bit more so yeah. Chaz was talking about that a bit on Monday in in the press call there about the fact that they sort of had four different philosophies they ended up running through in Sydney and the last one they felt was pretty good and and they chucked it in for the start of Bathurst week and it it worked straight away so um the the surprise element was definitely the fact that We'd not seen that car, honestly. We'd seen them win a couple of races this year, but never dominate a weekend like that. No. No. 
No, exactly. I, I think the shootout kind of told the story, you know, obviously like it's easy to say because it's a record lap, but if you look at the way that Brody and Cam were like bouncing off the walls to do their times, like up until Chaz sort of hit the end of the first sector, his lap almost looked slow. Like it looked like he had a lift in the middle of Griffin's. It looked like, you know, what's he actually doing here? And afterwards, you know, you know, he's broken the lap record, fastest ever lap around there, um, and he's sitting there talking about how kind of easy it was. You know, he said it was uh, effortless. Um, and I guess that when your car's that good, the walls kind of feel like they're a long way back. And drivers talk about that all the time. Like taking poles and winning races is actually easy. It's easy when you've got the car to do it. It's easier than battling your way to finish 15th in a car that's trying to throw you into the wall every time you turn into a corner. Um, so, you know, it was just, it was remarkable. And it must have been pretty eye-opening. You look at the fact that, you know, when Shane was following that car, he wouldn't be used to seeing a car just drive away like that. He's raced faster cars before, but he's always found his sort of Shane way to broach that gap and mm. stay in the race or get back ahead. And it just seemed like that was just never going to happen. And Chaz talked about the desperation of when Shane was trying to sort of run him wide and get cars in between him and going, oh, he's worried. He's actually really worried about how quick this thing's going. No matter how good the car is to drive. It was still an amazing effort from Chaz. Um, and what I really enjoyed about it was that Lee really contributed um, to, to the race result. He had a hand in that win, you know, particularly as they were sort of trying to get back on the front foot from the uh, from the tyre issue. It sort of seems pretty likely now that Matt Payne is not going to get a super licence dispensation for the 2022 season. Do you reckon, like, you know, a drive like that could see Lee put himself in the conversation to take over the seven at Kelly Grove Racing next year, Stefan? Yeah, well, the Groves are, we think, going to be in a situation where they really need a one-year solution, which is highly unusual if um, if they run, run Matt Payne in Super 2 next year and uh, then want him full-time in 2023. So, yeah, Lee Holdsworth has to be a uh, at least a chance at that. It was interesting. He, he was asked about full-time driving in the press conference um, after the race and uh, he sort of spoke about the fact that uh, obviously – Winning Bathurst made having to sit out this year um, worthwhile. You know, you would trade it, wouldn't you, at the start of the year to, okay, you only get one race, but you get to win Bathurst. Yeah. Um, but then he sort of gave it a bit of the whole like, oh, I've done that now though. So it would be great to be full-time again, but uh, not holding my breath was, I think, his, uh, the way he worded it in the end. So, yeah, he would be a, a turnkey solution for a decent steerer. Whether they go with someone like him or or Zane Goddard, who we talked about, I think, last week, um, who's also another one that uh, could be plugged in, we'll, uh, we'll wait and see. But, yeah, it's a shame with the Matt Payne situation. Like, um, he's just uh, feels like he's just been put under so much pressure so unnecessarily and everyone is is watching every move for, for every mistake. And, you know, I think we've made this point before, but this isn't a conversation about whether he's a good driver or not. He's clearly very quick and he's clearly, um, you know, all indications are he's going to have a great supercars career. It just doesn't need to start next year. Have a year in Super 2, you know. And if the Groves are serious about running a junior development program with their Grove junior racing team or whatever it's exactly called, you got to look after your young talent and chucking them you know, in the frying pan or out of the frying pan into the fire, you know, isn't a way to look after them. So um, I think it's important that they manage a talent like Matt properly. And I think managing a talent like Matt properly is giving him a year in Super 2 to sort of iron out all those little creases in his game. Uh, and then he can sort of come into the, uh, into the, into the top tier as, as someone ready to do so, let's just run through a few of the talking points uh, from the race weekend. One of the very big controversies uh, was the Erebus cars being thrown out of the shootout for having light doors. i got to say, Stefan, when I was watching the shootout, I thought, geez, those cars look a bit light in the door. Did you um, did you notice that as well? It must have come up on TV a bit clearer than the yeah, I think, I think the it <laughs> I think Brody, Brody was trying to lighten them even more by scraping them up against the walls across yeah. the top. <laughs> Maybe that maybe that was the issue. I, I, I don't know the exact um, weight deficit in the doors. It was, I'm guessing, absolutely next to nothing. Um, the cars themselves weren't underweight. So just to clarify why the panel weights kind of matter, it's all about center of gravity. That was one of the big controversies. It kind of started in 2018 when the ZB Commodore and its composite panels came into the category. It continued into 2019 um, with, the, with the Mustang. 
they were trying to fit composite panels to the Nissans to catch up. Uh, the DJR cars, the Falcon and the Mustang were initially running the world's heaviest exhaust system um, to try and get the cars up to the minimum weight but have the weight uh, as low as possible. So, you know, the less panel weight, the more weight you can stack down low. Um, Stephen, the announcement says that this was an oversight uh, from the from a team fatigued by, you know, a five-race, six-week bonanza to, to bring the season to a close. How would a team feasibly get something like that wrong by accident, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I feel that it was uh, was a mistake. I mean, putting three light doors on one car and one on another doesn't sound like a systematic uh, plan. Um, the, the door is obviously a spec size and everything, but um, with something like that, the team's the teams cut their own door trims on the, on the mm-hmm. internal side. Um, and obviously, you know, all, all teams are pushing the limits in, in all of these areas and you want to be on that minimum weight. Um, and the way it was explained to me, it may have been as little as 130 grams um, for a door that, you know, right, right front door weight is 15 kilos. I'm not sure exactly about the others because that's all in the vehicle spec document that uh, is not public. But yep. um, something like that, you can just... They, they weigh these panels at their own workshops and if your scales are very slightly out and they don't calibrate with the scales that supercars put them on in the scrutineering, then you can find yourself in trouble. Um, you know, we, we know that Erebus put a, a lot of work into improving all of their stuff in that in that break and they came out really, uh, really firing after that. So, yeah, you, you're trying to uh, have everything as close to the limit as you can and sometimes uh, a mistake an honest mistake can uh, can catch you out. Absolutely, um, we touched on this last week, but you know the the, the Bathurst one thousand, well, the whole Bathurst week was a big test for Brock Feeney. Not really an audition because he's already got the job uh, replacing Jamie Winkup next season, but certainly you know his sort of first outing in the spotlight in that wildcard Triple Eight car. How did you rate his performance? I thought he was outstanding, which. Um you know, obviously it ended up poorly. He ended up in the fence at the top of the hill. Um, but, you know, he went he went into that weekend with a lot on his plate. He got the job done in Super 2 winning that title. Um, we'd, uh, we'd sort of uh, talked about whether he was going to make the shootout um, on the uh, in Friday qualifying, and he got closer than I thought, I must admit, like P15 yep, against all the primaries. That, uh, that raised a few eyebrows. Um, and then that first in in the race, I mean, he just drove his way into the top 10 when not many people were making moves. He was overtaking supercars champions like Craig Lowndes and, and Mark Winterbottom and, and moving forward. Um, and his, his race pace was probably a second or so better than Russell Ingalls. Um, yep. So they had a big deficit to, to make up after Rusty did his stints. Um, but, yeah, in the end he was – Brock was holding his own there in the top 10 um, and he made a, what he called a stupid mistake. I, I sort of I did speak to him afterwards and, and I loved the way he sort of um, explained it and his perspective on it. Um, you know, he didn't want to be a pushover. He wanted to make his mark there, um, put a line in the sand ahead of next year and he certainly, I think, uh, did that. Yeah, that's a brewing attitude, and and I've got to say, he he he, I think he exceeded expectations as well. Um, he drove really well all weekend, as you mentioned in qualifying, really well in the race. You know, obviously they they were kind of helped. You know, there were times they were helped a bit in terms of track position by not having to double stack um, with anyone as well. But you could really see the difference between him and you know someone like Russell Ingle, who's not fully race fit. Um, he genuinely looked like the. Um, the real, the real deal, you know, and you know, there's kind of this. There's an old saying in motorsport that you know a team boss might might forgive you for crashing a car, but he'll never forgive you for being slow. Um, and there certainly wasn't sort of a, a case to be made that he's not going to be up to driving that car. So, like you say, he looked com- comfortable in the top ten, and that's kind of what you got to be in a triple eight car, you know. He just looked like a primary driver. He fitted yep. in straight away. We talk all the time about how big the leap is from Super Two to the main series. Well, he, he made it look a bit uh, a bit smaller than uh, we normally think it is. And I think he's actually, you know, this Super 2, to, to come back to the point that Super 2 is kind of an important step in this whole process, he's developed a lot this year as well because you touched on it the other week. He got out-qualified by Ange Mazuris uh, 
at Bathurst at the start of this season for the first round up there. So, and now he just looks like, you know, he looked like the best guy in Super 2 by some margin and he looks like a primary driver. He served that apprenticeship and he really looks ready uh, to step up. And I'll admit I kind of wasn't 100% sure where he was at or I was starting to think, you know, next year are we probably thinking that this guy might finish in the top 10 in the championship? Is that too big a stretch? I don't think it is. I think he's going to be, you know, in what's going to be handy equipment. He's going to be right in the game, not necessarily out there, you know, fighting for titles, but um, I think he's going to look like he he belongs. I think he's going to look like he belongs. Yeah, and, um, what and about- it's about it's it's about environment too. Sorry to cut you off, but no, no. even just being down there in the paddock post race to see a lot of key people from Triple Eight who weren't necessarily directly involved in running that uh, that wildcard car going down there, seeing if he, seeing if he's all right, patting him on the back, you know, all of that stuff. Like, um, yeah, it was just really cool to see people that uh, had no need to go down and uh, put their arm around him do so. Yeah, absolutely. What about the man he's uh, he's going to be replacing, Jamie Winker? What did you make of his final race weekend as a full-time driver? Well, it certainly wasn't, um, wasn't the fairy tale that I'm sure he would have hoped for. I guess the the underlying issue was the triple eight cars just weren't fast enough. I mean, yeah. you know, missing the shootout was that would have stung. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, having that session go on without without him in it, Jamie would have been hating that. Um, yeah. But in the end, like he was in that quality session on Friday, he was three tenths off of Shane, um, so he didn't disgrace himself. But it wasn't enough to get in in the race. You know, they were. They were okay, that car. They rose up um, up the order and uh, were second thanks to uh, to Shane's little help there on that restart um, when he hung Mostert up wide. But uh, it just put them in that double stack zone and then it yeah. just, just killed them. They just went from P2 back to, I think, P- P15 or something. So, yeah, to get fourth, it's sort of a bit of a nothing result there, unfortunately, but it's uh, the way it went. Yeah, the double stacking was an issue all day. Um, and like, as you said, the AAA cars weren't quite fast enough and then he wasn't the fastest AAA car. So you're just going to end up uh, in that danger zone of sitting in pit lane, not going anywhere when blokes are driving on past you. He didn't leave uh, Bathurst completely empty-handed. Um, he was uh, he took home the Barry Sheen medal for this year and uh, and was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Did you catch his, uh, his uh, Barry Sheen medal speech, <laughs> Stefan? I'm not I'm – not, I don't think he quite understands how that medal works because he talks about, you know, sort of what a great recognition from true races um, when it's actually uh, guys like you and me voting on that one. So maybe he just thinks we're true races. I'm not 100% sure. Well, clearly he's heard about your heroics in the Formula Ford at Barbagallo. Well, or or he's been tuning into your – have you got a a, a Twitch stream for your your Project Cars 2 work? Enough of that. Um, yeah, I don't know whether he got uh, he got confused with the driver's driver award, uh, which is voted on by the drivers, which uh, Shane won again. Um, interesting that Shane got the fan favourite as well. Um, that was uh, an interesting surprise. But um, with Jamie, I thought the more uh, the more interesting thing was the the Hall of Fame um, getting presented to him on the grid. I'm interested in your thoughts on that too. Clearly, he's Hall of Fame material, like absolutely. But it felt a little bit, I don't know if knee-jerk reaction is kind of the right term, but it felt odd that he's a current driver. Yes, he's retiring from full-time, but he's clearly going to be racing at Bathurst next year. He, You know, he's standing next to Craig Lowndes on the grid there and Jamie's getting the Hall of Fame and and Craig's not in it yet. Um, Yeah, it was sort of – it also felt like a bit of a Scott Morrison PR stunt, which didn't quite – give me a good vibe and yeah I don't know I feel like there's something special about those black tie galas with the whole ceremony of the Hall of Fame and, and a great speech and all of that stuff and it was just uh, yeah it's, it's obviously a big honor for him to be in the Hall of Fame but I'm not sure if that was quite the quite the moment yeah it was it, it was kind of odd um, obviously none of us were expecting it you would think something like that would be sort of foreshadowed by an announcement under embargo or something like that an announcement didn't come out for quite some time afterwards even after the race had started so it felt like supercars itself was a little unprepared for it 
I do think it was about this time a year ago that Scott Morrison was telling Cricket Australia to, you know, you focus on sport and let us politicians worry about politics. So it, that, that that whole thing felt kind of weird. Um, so, yeah, like you say, there's there's – like Jamie should be in the Hall of Fame, but did it have to happen right in that moment? Probably not. He's still got a whole career as a team boss coming up as well. You know, there's so there's no reason why that couldn't have been done next year or in five years or in 10 years at the gala back when we have a more sort of traditional setting to kind of do that whole thing properly. So it was kind of weird. I sort of, my first instinct was like, is this not going to be a little distracting for a bloke? Like he'd sort of done so well mm. to talk about, I'm not thinking about, any of that other stuff, I've got a Bathurst 1000 to get through and then there he is, you know, about to jump in the car. Um, well, he didn't end up starting the race, but, you know, like about to start to embark on that journey and this kind of fairly serious, significant things going on, yeah, it, it, it was odd. I totally get what you mean. It kind of felt like it was, um, it was poorly planned and opportunistic because of, uh, the person, the special guest they had there. But anyway. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. Let's just go back, circle back to the to the race winning car, the 25 Walkinshaw car. The way that it won that race, have we kind of completed the transition of this being a test of endurance to this just being a flat-out sprint race, do you reckon? Uh, That's an interesting one. I guess we sort of uh, talk about this year to year depending on exactly how the race played out. But I guess um, when you look at, say, the 25s race on on Sunday, the the whole thing, it's kind of like, um, like Mario Kart, like, you're just going flat out while dodging the various variables that get thrown up at you instead of, you know, bananas and, and bombs and whatever else. It's it's tyre failures, double stacking and echidnas, um, yep. you know. So, yeah, I mean, they just they just had the fastest car, which always helps, but it doesn't actually guarantee you the win. And there's just so many more variables than in the, in the sprint races. So, you know, there were periods there where there was a bit of fuel save racing going on. Um you know, with, with the safety cars. Um, so, yeah, it's that one was one on speed, but they're not always one on speed, are they? No, that's true. And I guess, yeah, when you look at, you know, things like uh, car 11 rolling to a stop with, you know, driveline issues and that sort of stuff, there is still an endurance portion to it, but it just felt like there's no need to worry about anything except driving these things as fast <laughs> as, they, uh, as they go, you know. But, yeah, maybe we're having a different conversation in – 12 months' time, 10 months' time, whatever it kind of uh, – I've, I've given up trying to work out when races are going to be, even though we do have a calendar, which we will get to soon. i tell you what, there was a couple of times uh, watching the race on Sunday where everyone was behind the safety car, uh, except for a couple of blokes going absolutely flat out down uh, Conrod Strait past the whole pack. Uh, what was your take on the whole sort of lucky dog get your lap back system? I um, – yeah, I think that needs to go. I uh – I dislike it for multiple reasons. I mean, one, it feels like it extends the safety car sort of period. It just looks messy, all of that. But also just recovering from a lap down like is no longer an achievement that it once was. I mean, there was no no lucky dog for Larry Perkins in 95, was there? Um, No. But these days if you spray it early, you can uh, get a massive, uh, massive free kick. So... Yeah, I can see why in a world where teams have influence on the rules that if I was running some fairly uncompetitive cars that could go a lap down, I'd uh, put my hand up for the lucky dog rule, but I don't think that's how it should uh, be decided. Yeah, there was um, there was a moment, you know, I was watching the race with some other racing people um, based over here in Perth and uh, where someone said, oh, how many cars are on the lead lap? And it was like everyone late in the mm. race and that's a normal question that you ask late in the race who's on the lead lap who's actually still technically in some sort of contention here and it was like it's kind of irrelevant now because it's everybody except for the cars that are 14 laps off the pace and then you go through the classification and they end up being like eight laps on the pace because they just every time there's a safety car they get another lap back so yeah i agree it's sort of seems fairly fairly unnecessary um 
Well, as well as being the biggest race weekend of the year, it was a monumental news weekend as well. Uh, Friday, I don't know about you, Stefan, Friday was about as busy a day as a news journo uh, as I can remember as we launched the Gen 3 cars. Straight off the bat, first question, what do you think of the Gen 3 Mustang Camaro? Yeah, I think they're they're awesome. I mean, considering that, um, you know, we're, we're in a world where Falcon's dead, Holden's dead, you know, all these things that the category was built on for so many years. Uh, a couple of years ago, it felt really, really uncertain where it was going to go. And we were, you know, listening to a V6 turbo go up and down the mountain going, is this really the, the future of this deal? Mm-hmm. Um, so to go from where we were then to have these, what I think are fantastic looking, fantastic sounding race cars roll out at Bathurst is a, is a great outcome. Um, you know, the less aero should mean the racing's better. Um, clearly teams are going to save money on these these engines um, with the way they've had uh, gone about that with one uh, engine builder per manufacturer. Um, how much the overall car cost is um, still a little bit up in the air, but, uh, yeah, overall I think they've done a great job. I've been thinking about how I was going to tackle this since Friday. Uh, well, actually, since uh, since Thursday, Arvo, when a, a little a candid shot of the Mustang might have found its way into my uh, – <laughs> into my inbox. I've got to be honest, and I'm not trying to just tear things up for the sake of tearing things up. I was I was a little underwhelmed. When I saw the car for the first time, I was a little bit underwhelmed. And I mentioned the other week about, you know, not wanting the cars to look like they're getting prepared for the Bathurst six hour. And that was kind of my first impression. Like full disclaimer, I haven't seen him in the flesh. So I should probably reserve my final judgment until – that to you know to at such point I have seen them in the flesh, and I'm not saying they look bad either. Absolutely not saying they look bad because they don't. They look really good. My issue was kind of, does this thing look like a supercar? And I'm really not sure it does. They definitely look like the road cars. They've got plenty of road car DNA. That's kind of been the slogan through this whole thing: road car DNA. But have we done that at the expense of the supercars DNA? Because since you know, throughout the V8 era, the cars have been recognisable. And I sort of feel like we might be losing some of that. Like these could be Mustangs or Camaros from any series anywhere in the world. Um, and like you could look at the current Mustang and it might bring up, you know, it will bring up a lot of feelings. Nausea <laughs> might be one of, one of them, but you'd never be, you'd never be underwhelmed. Um, I, to me, it was kind of the rear wings on the cars. Like they just lack that little bit. And I know that, you know, the current Mustang rear wing is absolutely taking the PI double five big time, but like there's got to be a middle ground, you know, and it doesn't have to mean more aero. It can be something decorative that just has a bit more, a bit more grunt to it. And that was sort of my first impression. I, I, I have to say the more I watched them on track, the more I liked them. And I, I started to sort of imagine them racing. I think the fact that was sort of painted up to look like hot dealer specials as well, not necessarily racing cars, but the more I watched them, I went, okay, I can see how these things would race. Um, they sound great, particularly the Mustang. Whatever they're doing with that straight through exhaust, they need to find a way to keep doing that because that was one of my big concerns as well. I love the sound of the current cars, but I have to say I was listening to it going, that that sounds pretty good. Did it sound good in the flesh as well? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was sounded good. It sounded very loud um, and boy, was there a stink about, uh, about that in the lead up to uh, Bathurst that uh, Ford wanted to run their car with no, uh, no muffler. And the Camaro was going to run uh, with one, and uh, there was a bit of toing and froing about uh, which was the right way to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just feel like your concerns are just—you um, just—we're so used to seeing these enormously ridiculous big wings on the back of these cars um, with the mad end plates on them that yeah. I'd rather a car look like a Mustang than look like a supercar, if you know what I mean. So I think we, we wanted them to look more like the road cars and we wanted them to have less aero. And this is just a bit of a trade-off that you've got to get used to that uh, it does look a bit different in the aero department. Obviously, they still haven't done the, the VCAT homologation testing of the final packages. So I'm sure there's a variety of uh, different bits and pieces that they're going to put on the cars. And also, we're still expecting there to be a new actual model Mustang road yeah. car before these things race in 2023 um for performance boss mark rushbrook was here from the united states at bathurst and he was very cagey about that but um 
yeah, I think the the final Mustang race car is going to be a different model. But anyway, um, yeah, I think you just you're just going to take a bit of time to get used to the fact that uh, they don't look like the uh, the current supercars. If we can get used to the current Mustang, then our eyes can get used to literally anything. So I don't <laughs> doubt that for a second. But like I say, I'm just I can't change. I don't want to be negative, and I don't think I am being negative, but I, I can't change what my first impression was, which was, oh, okay. Well, I guess so. Looks like a Mustang, no doubt about that. Looks good. Looks good. The Camaro looks great. The front-on shot of the Camaro really does look great. I just, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe I'm being overly nostalgic for kind of, you know, V8 supercars, these touring cars. You know, I just I feel like they could have done a little bit more to retain that. Um, but we'll watch them go racing. Like I say, the longer I watch them, the more I kind of enjoy them. So I'm not anti-Gen 3, just being honest about my uh, my first impression. One thing I didn't understand, why, Stefan, on God's green earth, did the Camaro have an American flag on the bonnet? Uh, yeah, that one I probably can't answer. It. It's almost like trolling the, the fans that uh, write on the social medias about how uh, – they decry the lack of the Aussie cars anymore. But um, it is interesting with um, GM and the way they're trying to transition the the Holden fan base. Um, it was definitely bizarre to be in the media centre all weekend sitting behind a row of people with Chevy racing shirts. That was, mm. uh, that was something different. But they had, um, yeah, Chevy people parading around uh, the Rory the Lion mascot that um, we hadn't seen in a while um, as a bit of a, like a final raw kind of uh, sentiment and just handing out flags with like Holden on one side, Chevy on the other. Um, it's obviously important for the sport to have that rivalry that we've had with Ford and Holden continue and they're sort of not taking for granted the fact that all the Holden fans would just move across to, to Chevy, especially considering the way that Holden was, was killed off from uh, yeah. the bosses in America. I mean, you you know, even the most loyal GM Holden person here couldn't, I would imagine, help but feel a little bit uh, a little bit wounded by that. So, um, yeah, it's it's naturally a big, big change to go from Holden to, to Camaro, and that's just uh, part of what we're going to go through ahead of 2023. Oh, the PR offensive was on. You know, there was this kind of um, this video package on the telecast of, the bloke with the Holden flag that gave Giz the Holden flag at the end of the race last year, you know, him and Giz and Tanda went and picked him up in a in a Chevy, what's it, a Silverado or whatever it is, and they went back to the paddock and they got him a new Holden Motorsport flag, but it has the other side Chevy racing and, you know, like it was kind of a little cringeworthy and very much, you know, you, you Holden fans, make sure you're on board with this new thing we're doing. But the, the, the American flag just seemed to me like just kind of flies in the face of that entirely. It's just a baffling way to introduce something to Aussie race fans. And I don't get it and I, I don't really understand what someone thought the potential upside to doing that was. But anyway. A, a little bizarre, but I guess the we shouldn't get lost in the fact that it is uh, it is genuinely um, very, very good to have GM still engaged with the sport. It's very important and it's a great outcome that Gen 3 has both Ford and GM engaged. It definitely is. And if people think like it's pedantic to argue about paddle shift, they're not going to be happy with us talking about a, <laughs> a low transparency American flag that was sort of hidden on the uh, on the bonnet of the Camaro. So maybe we should stop talking about it. But I do want to talk about paddle shift because that was a red hot topic on Friday. And I had like a, you know, like a six day long FOMO episode not being at Bathurst, but it's peak. It's absolute peak was when I heard that there was a bit of a uh, – Bit of a biff on in the press conference, uh, in the Gen 3 press conference. Stefan, you were there. Run us through what happened. Yeah, so there was um, the uh, the launch of the Gen 3 cars was done in, in the garage um, in the Bathurst pit lane early on Friday morning, about 8 a.m., and that was followed sort of an hour later by um, a press conference in the media centre with um, Sean Seymour, Adrian Burgess, Rob Herod on behalf of DJR, because Ryan's story was uh, not at the event. Uh, Roland Dane from Triple Eight, and then the Ford and GM bosses. Uh, and there was obviously a bit of general chat about Gen 3 initially. And then once the paddle shift topic got uh, brought up, it uh, <laughs> it got uh, pretty interesting. Roland was in uh, was in pretty fine form, giving his views and. Uh, 
he and uh, Robbie Herod were sort of going back and forth, one uh, more on the uh, paddle shift uh, side and one on the stick side. And these clearly weren't the uh, – it wasn't the talking point that uh, Seaman wanted this thing to be about. Um, I do feel uh, some empathy for him because he'd, he'd had a bad morning. He was uh, – Sean Seaman was late to the Gen 3 launch, which uh, raised a few oh eyebrows. And forced a little bit of a uh, late uh, reshuffle of the order that people were speaking in. Um, yeah, anyway, and uh, this press conference was getting slightly out of hand and he sort of lost his, uh, you could say lost his cool, um, yeah, and uh, moved to moved to shut it down. Well, let's have a bit of a listen to, uh, to how it went down. I think it's pretty disappointing that we're sitting here having a conversation about how we're changing gears in these cars. Clearly people are losing sight of the overall package. You go down there and you have a proper look at those cars and that's what you want to talk about. It's pretty disappointing. We'll make a call. Next question. Can I, can I clarify from Roland what you meant before when you said, I think you mentioned, you know, potentially bullshitting in terms of how you change gears. Uh, you? I, I don't, enough, seriously. Can we talk about how good the cars are, the market relevance, how good they're going to sound? That's um that's an incredible interjection, I think, and, and here's why. Firstly, like the, the question that was posed by uh, by Dan Herrero from Speed Cafe that that Seema sort of fired back at and said, "Let's stop talking about this." Completely legitimate question, and um, you know, I think Dan's within his rights to ask that question, and and it was directed at Roland Dane. Roland should be within his rights to decide whether he wants to answer it or not. He doesn't need the series boss doing that for him, but like. Like you, you talked about the fact that, you know, that there was this debate going on and was it this press conference going in the wrong direction? It sounds to me like there was just a couple of influential people like debating a fairly serious matter. And I think this is a serious matter because like it shouldn't be reduced to, oh, this is just how you change gears. Who cares? It's not about how you change gears. It's about how you drive the car. It affects a whole range of factors when it comes to driving the car. And I was under the understanding that, the whole point of Gen 3 was to put the, the onus back on drivers, to put the onus back on the racing, take it away from the engineers, turn it from an engineering championship back into a driving championship and a sporting championship. You know, we're trying to make sure the cars are better suited to door-to-door racing and we're trying to ensure that the drivers can make the difference. So if this is going to be a driver's formula, you know, why is such a fundamental part of driving the car, which is, you know, what – action you do to change gears in terms of both your arms and your feet, all that sort of stuff, why is it being fobbed off as being unimportant? Why can't influential people debate it? Why can't the media report on it like the important issue that it is? And also when you leave something so important unresolved before the car is launched or at the time the car is launched, spoiler alert, it's going to come up in the press conference. Like am I am I wrong here? Yeah, that was my take out of out of that argy bargy in the press conference is just that they needed to have this sorted um, beforehand. Um, you know, if they'd made the decision a year ago that this was definitely how it was going to be, um, one way or the other, then um, it wouldn't have been the rolling shitstorm that it's been over the last year. Um, but that's not just a, it's not just been a sort of public debacle, right? It's like, hang on, hang on. Did you say shift <laughs> shift storm? I'm, I'll claim it, but no, that's just me slurring my words um, in, oh, okay. my, in my tired uh, tired state. But if you want to use that for one of your headlines, go for it. That is amazing. All right. Anyway, shift storm. Brilliant. Carry on, please. Um, yeah. The, there was actually some good insight, though, in that presser, particularly from Roland. Like he, he put it really down as saying like what he was criticising was the, the stick shift that is currently in that Gentry Mustang. Um, and just just to wind it back a bit, um, so everyone sort of sees w- where we're at. Like supercars had said, and they developed this assisted gear shift system, um, electronically changing the gears. And then the conversation initially was around whether that system is operated by paddles or a stick. But either way, it's electronic, so you're going to have auto blip, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, moving away from the mechanical system that we've always had with the heel and toe and and whatever, 
And Roland called that stick out as um, as bullshitting the fans, as a con, because it looks like what we currently have, but it's not. The skills aren't there, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not the same thing. So that was that was pertinent because I do feel that the argument now has become, do we stick with what we've got, pardon the pun, or mm-hmm. go the whole hog of paddle shift? This in-between, neither here nor there, electronic stick thing, I don't see that getting up. I think um, in Sean Seamus did say before he uh, before he said enough that um, that we're going to f- probably decide this within the next two weeks. Um, so we're getting pretty close on it. And I just feel that like say if you're Barclay Nettlefold or any of those new owners in, in supercars, um, you, you just you know you just look at this and go. Hang on, so we're going we're going to throw all this out. What the fans love at the moment, a key part of the sport, so that these new engines can run a nine hundred dollar set of Conrods instead of a two thousand dollar set of Conrods. Yeah, because you know if if you can just change upspec these new engines slightly, so they can cop the cop the punishment that the drivers currently give them with the uh, with the manual setup, then it's just the cost of going racing. It's the cost of doing business. It I is. mean, you can't. Yeah, you can't just cut these things out to save the teams a bit of money. And and I guess like you, you might be thinking, well, don't they have a 7,500 uh, RPM rev limit on them? Um, and they do, which works for the upshift. But for sure, some of these drivers, they see nine or 10,000 on a really aggressive downshift. But yeah, it's just, it's just part of driving the cars and, and the cost of doing business. It is like if you really want to just if 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 engine life is your primary concern, detune these things to four hundred horsepower. Do two seasons on them without a rebuild. Beauty, you're going to save some money. The product won't be any good. People won't come anymore. It's not going to be that good to watch. TV, your next TV deal won't be great. But you're going to have a massive engine. Life. I just don't like to say that it's not important how guys change gears. Oh, who cares? No one will care. People aren't like watching engine rebuilds either. Or counting them, sitting there counting them off every year. I get that it's a cost thing, but we're not talking about surely retaining the current shift setup doesn't shorten the the life by half. It's going to be minute differences. Whereas the actual visual of the driver changing gears, that's not a minute difference. That's a big difference. To to come back to what Roland said, I get, I actually understand what he's saying, that it is a bit of a halfway house with that electronic thing. And my preference is absolutely just retain what we got. And remember, we're keeping the same transaxles. They are actually fitting something onto the existing transaxle with this AGS system. So you can just literally do nothing with the gearbox. Just bolt exactly as it is into these new cars and off you go. So it's not a big stretch to actually leave the mechanical shift. And in my opinion, that's 100% what they should do. But when I was watching Anton drive that car in that first sort of televised Gen 3 session and he was grabbing the stick, it kind of looked like he was changing gears. Having to take your hand off the steering wheel is still is more challenging than not having to do that. So it's better than just going full paddles. But let's just stick with what we got. Yeah, and I mean, if if they really want to use electronics to save money for the teams, just make it an E series. Just load up our racing. There you go. And go. Then everyone can pick. You can run whatever you want. Pat paddles, stick, whatever you want to go with. That's a good exactly. idea. One more thing on Gen Three. Um, there were some reports um, early in the week or weekend or whenever it was that that Walkinshaws are looking at bringing the Jaguar to the grid in twenty twenty three. What was the kind of word in the paddock on that one, Stefan? Yeah, that was uh, an interesting one. It was a Daily Telegraph story that the claim that a handshake deal is is done between Walker Chores and Jaguar. Um, this is a story that had come up earlier in the year uh, around the fact that a deal was very close and then COVID had knocked it on the head. Um, I feel that it's the whole topic of Walkinshaw and Gen 3 kind of came back to the surface because um, – the WA drivers, WAU drivers, I should say, were notably absent from the launch for Gen 3. They had um, supercars had organised to have the four drivers standing next to the, the Mustang and a bunch of Holden drivers standing next to the Camaro. And uh, Walking Chores had decided not to take part in that, um, which clearly would raise speculation of, of what they're doing. Um, they've... 
Walkinshaw's denied that any deal with with Jaguar is done. I, I kind of feel that it's it's more it's a little bit more nuanced than them having another deal ready to go. I think that um, when when you look at the background of Walkinshaw's were the ones that were actually trying to bring the Camaro in, um, and that didn't happen on their terms and eventually through Triple Eight as the the Holden homologation team slash factory Holden turned GM sort of uh, team, they, they were the ones that really got that Camaro deal over the line. Initially, there was going to be no sponsorship money for any of the teams running Camaros and now there is some sort of deal there with Triple Eight. So I think when you look at all that, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not surprised that Walkinshaws don't want to just just say, yeah, we're running Camaros when they're not getting any support or anything like that. So even if the even if the likely outcome is that they end up that way, I, I don't blame them for not wanting to to commit hard to it publicly yet when they've got no no actual incentive to financial or otherwise. Yeah, we're over a year out from Gen 3 as well, so not wanting to commit right now, you know, isn't overly unusual. You know, what, one thing I will say is that, you know, Jaguar Land Rover has been adamant that it will be out of the internal combustion business in general by 2025, so uh, it would take some very careful PR management to kind of walk that back uh, and commit to what you would imagine, you know, would be more be you know, at least a two-year V8-powered um you know, ICE racing program. So that that's kind of a not an insurmountable hurdle, um, but would certainly be another hurdle to overcome uh, if that was to be the case. There was also some talk about, you know, Walkinshaws and Volkswagen earlier this year. So uh, who knows? It would obviously be fantastic to see another manufacturer or two on the grid. Let's have a look at the, uh, at the 2022 calendar that was announced over the weekend as well. Uh, as it stands, there's no Queensland Raceway on there. There's no the Ben Motorsport Park, but there is a TBC. The smart money seems to be that that TBC will end up being the bend. Stefan, you're a proud South Aussie. You're in South Australia right now. What's your mail uh, on the bend and, and why it isn't just on the calendar? Well, we've seen some argy-bargy between uh, the Shahins who uh, own and operate the bend um, and uh, big business players here in SA and uh, and supercars before. Um, it's been a real uh, soap opera the way that's bounced on and off the calendar. One minute they've got a 500k endurance race, the traditional Sandown 500. Uh, the next minute they're not on at all and then they were, you know, hosting back-to-back rounds in 2020 and it's uh, it's been a real roller coaster in only a couple of years that that circuit's been, uh, been operating. I believe the Bend wanted an enduro for 2022 um, and they also wanted a different date uh, mid-year. It's pretty chilly, pretty Arctic out mm-hmm. there at the Bend. Yep. And you've got to remember too that that event is one of the few independently promoted events. It's yep. not a supercars um, promoted round. So the, the circuit... Um, takes the takes the gamble effectively on um, paying supercars to come and then making their money back on the gate uh, on how many people turn up and and all the rest of it. So yeah, clearly they had a uh, they weren't able to get a deal done, and uh, I believe that actually did open the door then for for Winton to come in because um, there were some reports that Winton were going to miss out, but yep. I believe uh, Winton was slotted in effectively instead of the bend. Uh, which created creating the extraordinary situation of having no South Australian event on the calendar at all. The uh, the presence of that TBC date, as you mentioned, um, does give some hope that the bend could end up filling that slot if um, sanity prevails, for want of a better term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's QR also sitting there with Tony Quinn having purchased it, um, planning lots of uh, investment and upgrades, but unlikely much of that's going to be in place by midway through next year. So, um, yeah, there are a few moving pieces with that. And then also in the background, this um, push to get the Adelaide 500 back on the calendar, which um, will be determined by a March 19 election here in SA with the current opposition having pledged to bring it back if they get in. And there's been some really um, serious discussion about the potential for that to slot in as as the final round in 2022, which would be just extraordinary to have a street event 
um, reborn with a March election and then all of a sudden be back at the end of 22. So you would think that would be more likely 23 if the election goes that way. But um, yeah. yeah, there's still, even though we have a calendar, um, there's still a few things to uh, play out. According to the calendar, we'll finish the season at Sydney Motorsport Park. Uh, it mentioned under lights, there's a new sort of format called the Super 600 listed there, which um, scenes would be two 300-kilometre races. You would guess they would probably both be under lights, but that hasn't been confirmed and sort of the hard details of that are still up in the air. 300k races around Sydney Motorsport Park. Is that the best way for us to be ending our championship, Stefan? Like you'd want the championship fight to be alive, I reckon, to make sure there's some some interest there. Yeah, I mean, night racing, as we've discussed before, like it does create quite a cool TV product. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I ended either any of those 250k races hoping for 50k more. But um, yeah, I, I guess. Um, Having had the final round at Bathurst in the last couple of years, um, it will be, in my opinion, good to see uh, the series finish somewhere else because even though they haven't actually been title deciders these last two, the whole issue of the champion being really sort of lost in the moment of the Bathurst win and or having to hold up a trophy when they're really uh, annoyed that they just lost Bathurst is, is all very awkward. So. Yeah, it's just part of uh, having hopefully a more normal calendar next year, um, pending obviously uh, anything else going on in the world. Very, very true. Yeah, the last couple of years, I think it's actually been good for supercars that the, the championship's been decided before we get to the Bathurst finale. But next year, uh, I think if it does end up at Sydney, they're going to need something to give it mm-hmm. that little bit more interest, particularly with those um, with those longer races. Let's just go back to Bathurst a little bit, um, but not talk about supercars this time. Stefan, did you enjoy that one time that S5000 raced at Mount Panorama? Wow. Um, it's hard to know <laughs> what to say about that. I mean, the week the week started with um, uh, some grumbling from the S5000 camp about the fact that uh, Motorsport Australia and the FIA had made them cut 90 horsepower out of the cars to fit in with a power-to-weight ratio limit um, for a grade three licensed circuit like Bathurst. And uh, they were quite indignant about that, some of the guys down in the S5000 uh, area, because uh, obviously the, the headlines were kind of going to be how, just how fast they were going to go. Um, despite that, we still had, um, you know, the S5000 qualifying was, for me, one of the highlights of the weekend. It, oh, it was uh, brilliant. Yep. It was a session that just built beautifully. Like, you couldn't have scripted it better, and the – the last bloke to go to the top, Aaron Cameron, was the only one to do a 59, which was the number that we'd all wanted to see. Um, and after that, it uh, it got a little messy. It did. It definitely did. Yeah, I think if that had that extra 90 horsepower, I don't think uh, Aaron Cameron would have landed to collect his $30,000 Tasman Series check yet. <laughs> Um, he'd still be uh, he'd still be gone. I think driving standards were obviously an issue. I, you could kind of say the same about a lot of the support categories. Like I didn't sit down and watch every second of every support category all weekend, but I had the TV going a lot, and it seemed like there was lots of uh, safety cars and red flags and races being shortened and uh, and all that sort of stuff. I don't think the fiddly sort of reverse grid format helped with S five thousand either, um, but oh, I don't know. I sort of feel like maybe Bathurst just isn't an open wheeler track. You know, and not just S five thousand that formed the Ford at the twelve hour a couple of years ago. Like it's just when you when you've got that long shoot down Conrad and then into the chase, it's just it's just too sketchy. Like somewhere like Phillip Island, you've got a long shoot that goes into a fast corner, not a stop corner. You know, and not just a stop corner, but a, a corner that kind of doubles back on itself, where someone can fire off one end and clean up someone in the middle. So for cars without a roof on them. I don't know. It just doesn't. It it wasn't. It wasn't the most comfortable viewing. Qualifying was awesome. I totally agree. And then they started driving near each other, and it kind of got sketchy. And the sort of shunts that you thought might happen um, started to happen. So I think it'd be a big stretch to get them back. But uh, maybe I'm. I say that just based on 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 what I saw, not through any uh, insider info. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll see what happens in the future. I, I must admit that I didn't see every lap of, of all their races. Um, you know what it's like. Uh, as a journal on these race weekends, you've sort of got to split your time between absorbing what's happening on track and, and getting around and, and talking to people. And, for example, on the on the Sunday, um, 
the S5000 race was on when the Mark Rushbrook Ford performance presser was on in, in one of the garages. And you sort of hear the start of the race and you hear him come around once or twice and then it all goes a bit quiet and you're like, oh, God, what's, you know, what's, <laughs> what's happened here? Sort of crane the neck out of the garage to make sure there's, there's nothing at least orbiting the, the Earth's surface that looks like an S5000. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you touched on it before that it, it did feel like a lot of the support categories were pretty messy, like Super 2 and Super 3 definitely was as well. Um, and it... It sort of really hit home how how good the drivers are in that supercars field, particularly at the top end. Like to, to go through a week of red flags and safety cars with all these categories and then to see these top guys in the supercars go out in the shootout and like drag these things around within millimetres of the walls everywhere and no one have an actual yeah. shunt in that session in particular – um, I mean, it was it was pretty clean through the whole week with with supercars. There was only one or two um, incidents in those sessions, um, all the way up to the race. Um, yeah, I think it's easy to take for granted just how much risk gets taken in something like a shootout, and how much skill is involved in, in throwing those cars around there right on the limit. It's um, yeah, that shootout was definitely one of the highlights of the weekend. It was very impressive. Yeah, very well said. And the shootout was one of the best things I've watched in a long time. One of the best shootouts for a long time. It was uh, it was absolutely brilliant. Formula One and Stefan, this is the title fight that just uh, it just keeps on giving. Points are level between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen after a pretty wild Saudi Arabian Grand Prix on Sunday night or Monday morning, depending on uh, where you were watching it. Um, for those that didn't see, there were two red flags, three race starts, three spicy clashes between uh, the two title rivals. Uh, it was The whole thing was pretty messy, to be honest. Uh, Stefan, as a learned man of motor racing, I want to just sort of get your thoughts on each of these controversial kind of flashpoints um, that we saw. We'll try and sort of brush through it or we'll be here uh, until after next week's race, trying to get through it all. Um, firstly, you know, the, the first controversy we saw was an early red flag uh, and someone like Lewis Hamilton had already made a pit stop. Max Verstappen didn't but could change his tyres under the red flag. Is that is that a rule that needs to be changed, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of almost just one of those basic pub test ones, right? Um, I think yep. with um, – especially in that situation where a safety car turns into a red flag – that it just exposed the injustice in that, that when the safety car's called, you pit your car, but if you'd waited, you you could luck into a red flag. It's, um, yeah, it's not right, and clearly they need to, at the very least, have a think about that. Yeah, it seems like a pretty easy loophole to just close off and sort of cut that thing out. Uh, next up, Max sort of cutting the first corner chicane uh, and then sort of trying to park. I think you'd been watching the uh, the Shane Van Gisbergen book of uh, – <laughs> reading the Shane Van Gisbergen book of racing, trying to park a Lewis sort of wide on the corner so that Esteban Ocon could uh, could sneak through as well. Uh, did, he, did, did he deserve to have to give that spot back, do you reckon? It's hard to know how to call these ones because – how they adjudicate incident to incident, it's not very easy to uh, draw, yeah. a, draw a trend line through these ones. I've yep. got to say, as soon as I saw that turn one, two complex there, I just thought, oh, it's almost like they've designed this to create <laughs> a mess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then there was the incident itself and then the horse trading of Michael Massey, the race director, offering Red Bull um, deals that we were hearing the radio of. That was also... Really bizarre. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, it, it was all such a colossal cluster that it was hard to have a strong opinion on any of the of any of the particular individual incidents. What What were your thoughts on that one? Yeah, look, I, I think in terms of the the incident itself, that very first one. Um, I think Max was trying to take a line that, that that wasn't there, you know, like at the end of the day he was just trying to make space. Whether Lewis ran him wide or not, he kind of barreled around the outside and there just wasn't any space there. The, the kind of trading of uh, penalties was a weird one because um, Massey's come out since and said, we do that all the time. That's completely normal. But there's been this parade of team bosses going, I've never, ever heard of that ever happening <laughs> in my life before and never been involved in it. Like this is absolutely out of control. Um, so it's kind of hard to tell, you know, I'm not, I don't know enough about the, the, the race direction process to sort of know who's telling the truth there. Cause obviously everyone's going to be trying to tell their side of the story. Um, 
we saw two of those clashes between Max and Lewis in that complex, tricky little complex, as you said. Um, the funny part is, you know, the, so there was the, the second one where they actually clashed. Um, Max Lewis gets a run on Max. Max kind of locks the rears, trying to defend into there and then runs Lewis wide. I actually think that wasn't as bad as the first one because Lewis was kind of playing the low percentage move a little bit on the outside. But, you know, once Max loses control of the car, I guess he probably put himself in a position where race control was going to say, hey, you, you got an advantage by sort of shortcutting, you know, bouncing over the curb there. Um, the funny part is, like, on the, I think it was the, on the first restart, you know, when Max got put back behind Lewis and uh, Ocon, like, he just barged down the middle of them and passed them beautifully and cleanly into turn one. Like, when he channels his aggression well, he's just brilliant. It's unbelievable. He just doesn't seem to channel it properly enough. You know, he seems to let the moment overcome him um, too often. And I think we kind of saw that when he had to give that position back as well. You know, for the second time that they clashed where he locked the rears, he was told, give the position back. He was told to give it back strategically, which I think was a key word. Hmm. Um, It's hard to understand what and when Lewis knew about what was happening. The race was still green. It's kind of odd that, you know, he didn't just try and dive past him as as soon as he slowed, but there was some, no one wanted to be first to the DRS line because, you know, obviously Max was trying to get Lewis past before the DRS line. So he'd have DRS and he could just breeze back past him down the straight. It's all pretty tricky to figure out, you know, exactly how that played out in terms of who was trying to do what strategically. But the brake test, like 2.4 Gs of deceleration when you have a car parked on your gearbox, Stefan, surely that's a low percentage move regardless of what's going on. Yeah, it sort of like looked like initially it was okay what Max did, but then the combination of moving slightly across to the middle of the road and slowing a lot more uh, when Lewis initially didn't take the pass, um, yeah, that that did look bad. I mean, the fact that there was the yeah the funny buggers sort of being played with the DRS zone and and trying to um, let him pass exactly there, so then Max could get DRS down the straight is probably the epitome of how that's still gimmicky and not proper car racing like when they're trying to to do that as part of a redress um, I kind of I look at these redress incidents and remember like sort of 2016-ish when obviously with Bathurst but when this was a regular thing in supercars and we nearly had multiple big shunts and mm, ultimately yeah. did have that one at Bathurst caused by people massively woeing up on a straight um to, to let other people through. But, yeah, in that case, the onus is, for me, on the, the car doing the slowing to make sure it's it's safe. And um, that was uh, that was a very messy way of going about that. And then the other extraordinary thing was how strong these cars are now. Like the contact yeah. between the, the back of uh, the Red Bull and the front of the Merc, um, yeah, even if you were trying to take someone out in a title decider, God forbid, um, you'd have to do a massive job of it. You would have to that you'd have to sit down and watch race four at uh, the S five thousands at Bathurst and go all right. I see how you uh, how you get this job done. It's all going to come down to uh, Abu Dhabi this weekend. It's like basically a one race shootout for the title. How good! Like it's, it's just awesome. Who uh, who takes it for you? Oh, I think it's it's pretty hard to call. So I might wait for you to call it and then just be the contrarian and and go the other way. I uh, I just hope it's decided on track though. Like um, that, yeah, yeah. I know. The I know. What Sunday's you mean. race was just it wasn't really racing a lot. It was it was kind of a joke in the end. So yeah, yep. I just hope it's it's a proper sporting contest. Yeah, me too. And we've seen we have seen good ones there. Um, before in, in in title deciders, so yeah, look, I, I I hope it is too. I think at this point, the form that Mercedes seems to have, and just the sheer experience um, of Lewis, is going to be enough. I know it's a bit of a boring answer, but I just think he's gonna have the smarts to get it done. Whereas these sort of hot head moments from Max seem to be too costly. But in saying that, like, honestly, Max could just do something brilliant like that move that he pulled the, the one move that he made stick into turn one in Saudi Arabia. You know, that just shows that he's got these, he's got the ability. He's fast enough. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And maybe aggression wins the day at some point when it is critical to get by um, at a stage of the race, that's going to make the difference. 
maybe the fact that, you know, Lewis is kind of likes to play the, the you know, yeah, I'll make space because I'm the fair driver game. Maybe that won't work for him in a, in a, in a sort of, in a bloody, brutal title decider. Yeah, and then there's the element of, um, you know, what role Bottas plays in it. We didn't even talk about the fact that he uh, he did a bit of cheeky slowing uh, slowing Max up mm. under safety car, which um, really brought me back uh, some Bathurst memories. Um, <laughs> but but when you're being booted out of the team at the end of the year, I don't know. Do you uh, do you actually help your teammate or not? Yep. Yep. Very very good point. Alrighty, let's uh, let's name our Castro stars of the week, uh, Steph, and I'm chucking it straight over to you. Who you got this week, mate? Well, obviously there are a lot of uh, a lot of stars and uh, performers at Bathurst, but for me, um, seeing Campbell Little back in the Supercars paddock, um, he's technical manager at Supercars these days, a legendary engineer, um, but he's had a uh, a horrible year, um, diagnosed with cancer in February and then not being at any of the racetracks um, while he was dealing with, with a lot. Um, so, yeah, to see him see him back um, was just fantastic. So uh, I'm not going past him. Very, very good shout. I think we both sort of debated whether, uh, whether uh, you know, our spiky echidna friend should, uh, should be one of the stars of the week. We'll give him an honourable mention for sure. But I'm just going to play a straight bat. Uh, and give it to uh, Lethal Lee Holdsworth. I think if you looked up a uh, good thing happening to good person in the dictionary, you'd probably see him standing on top on the top step of the Bathurst 1000 uh, podium. So that was a, a very likable result, um, I have to say. Uh, I reckon that's going to do us this week, Stefan. I think we're going to leave it there. It's a uh, it's a bit of a bumper, but there was a fair bit to unpack between you know big race, big news, all that sort of stuff. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Remember to uh, like and subscribe and review our work uh, wherever you happen to um, listen to your podcast. And we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport news. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars, unforgettable. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.